and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or Twitter using the handle at KickbackGAP. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I am delighted today to be joined by David Barboza, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times, best known for his reporting on China and particularly the hidden assets of senior Chinese leaders. Uh, he's worked on a number of other issues as well, and we're delighted to have him with us today. So, David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Maybe the best place to start is with your reporting, the this investigative uh, reporting work that you did for the New York Times about hidden wealth, uh, the families of Chinese leaders. Many of our listeners may already be familiar with the reporting that you did on this topic, mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody will be. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about the story that you broke, how you came to work on that topic, and what you learned in reporting? Sure. So it began really for me, I, I got arrived in China in 2004 as the business reporter for the New York Times. And for the next seven years, about seven years, I kept hearing these rumors about the families of senior leaders being involved in listed companies and in, in taking large payments and having sort of, they called them secret shares in the business world. And I didn't think it was possible actually to do that investigation. Um, I wasn't sure how much this was true. I didn't know what the numbers were, but I kept taking notes about this uh, all those for those seven years, I, I would often meet people for dinner or at, at different meetings, and I'd make little notes, handwritten notes, and put them in a folder, hoping one day I could look into that story. And so in 2011, uh, when I thought I was in my final year uh, in China for the New York Times, I pieced together a lot of those notes and tried to figure out if this is really true, and people have been telling me this every year, how do I make that into a story? How do, how do I confirm whether this thing is true or not? And the numbers started to really skyrocket. They were, they were telling me, no, these are not, you know, people with millions of dollars. They're people with tens of millions of dollars, if not more. So in 2011, the sort of midway through the year, I started building this investigation of this. And, and I started just looking at the rumors, looking at all of the major families, the Politburo members and their families and making charts and figuring out where their children were working, where they went to school, where they came upon the money. And eventually we narrowed that list of basically every Politburo member from 1992 to the present, um, 2011 at that time, down to a few families that we thought there, was the, there were the most rumors and hints that this might be true. So finally we, we decided that the, the easiest one to investigate would be the prime minister of China's family. That was Wen Jiabao, who was known as the, the man of the people, the people's prime minister. Uh, but he did have oversight over the economy and finance and banking. Um, and we knew quite a lot about, I mean, relative to the others, about 
his children and his wife. And so we started out with sort of the rumors about them and affiliations they had with different companies. And I started this sort of year, year and a half long investigation to figure out, is there any truth to the reports or the rumors that the family of the prime minister was in the, in the money in a big way? And to my own shock, after that investigation, or as even in the first, I would say, months of that investigation, we started to see really big numbers. And I'm pretty sure within two months of the beginning of the investigation, I emailed my editors at the New York Times and said, it looks like we have accumulated documents or hints that they may have a billion dollars in different Chinese companies, the family members, or they're at least associated with a billion dollars. It would take another year of going through corporate records and, and accounting documents, etc., to figure out what the true wealth that we could confirm was. But I had a, a lot of hints early on that the numbers were way bigger than I could have ever imagined. And that there were actually records to document some of this. And I can tell you about some of the details as we talk, but um, I don't think I've ever done an investigation or reporting where there was not a single human source, that it was all documentary evidence. And, and as you can imagine, the nature of an investigation like this in China, when as a journalist, you are being followed and tracked by the government everywhere you go. They have different people in state security meeting with your translators almost weekly to ask what is what is David doing? What is the New York Times working on? That you have to be very cautious about how you carry out an investigation in China. And I tried to think about that. And so I was determined not to make any calls about this story. I didn't know if it was true. And to just build sort of what I could on the ground through records or through research and then eventually start making calls and talking to people about it. So I went, you know, for the next, I think, 13, 14 months, um, sort of my secret investigation while I was trying to do my regular job of reporting on business and economics in China, this side investigation into could I prove this case? And for a long time, I have to tell you, I wasn't sure whether what I was getting in the early days, the documents were true. How could I confirm them? How could this possibly be in documents? And were we being tricked? Were someone sending us fake documents? So anyway, I went through that whole period trying to build the case as airtight as I could, a case that I would present to the New York Times lawyers and accountants and my editors. Do we want to risk doing a story of this sensitivity with natural security implications in the New York Times? Um, but I, you know, we we ended up publishing in October 2012 the, you know, all the evidence that I had about the family of the prime minister actually holding at least 2.7 billion U.S. dollars. Still hard to fathom now. And actually, in later years, we found even more money. So just under their own names, it turns out there were billions of dollars with just this one family. And they weren't the, we looked at other families and there were, there were documents and evidence of other families. But this is the one that we felt it's got a listed company. It's got a lot of government documents. We know a lot about who the close relatives of the prime minister is. We didn't choose them for any particular reason. We didn't think like, you know, we don't like the prime minister or 
or this is our favorite target. We just said whatever one we could get the best evidence, that's what we would go with. So we went with that story. I imagine a lot of people wonder, I know you're asked this question a lot, how were you able to do this story in China and about China? And a couple things you mentioned, I want to pick up on it and ask mm -hmm. you about. So first, you talked about how this story was based entirely on documentary evidence. And I think mm -hmm. many people who are maybe not that familiar with China, mm -hmm. or perhaps many people who are very familiar with China, would be surprised to discover that a Western reporter could find sufficient documentary evidence to establish ownership in Chinese companies by mm -hmm. the family members of the political elite when this was uh, something that was deliberately obscured. Mm -hmm. And uh, second, operating as a journalist conducting this inquiry in a society like China where foreign journalists in particular are monitored, how you were able to conduct an investigation this complex over a period of more than a year without the Chinese government getting wind of what it was that you were looking for mm -hmm. and shutting you down. So can you say a little yeah, bit more sure. about those two sure. aspects of this sure. must have been a very challenging story. Yeah. So how do you do that? Yeah. So yes, a lot of people would, would say, in fact, as soon as we published, how is it possible, one, that there are in China where there's apparently not very good documents and not very good transparency. How could you find documents in China? And by the way, you don't read much in Chinese. How could you read these documents? Did someone give you these documents? How could you carry out this investigation also with the Chinese government trailing all of the Western journalists, monitoring you? So there were all sorts of challenges and seemingly impossible situation. I, I didn't even know myself, like, would there be government documents? Unlikely. Would I be able to find them? Unlikely. Would the government send them to me in the mail? Unlikely, right? Would we even be able to publish this? Unlikely. So all of these sort of seemingly impossible situation, um, that's actually what makes it exciting about being a journalist or an investigative reporter is lots of people told me, even if this is true, it will never be in the documents. Even if it is in the documents, they will never use their real names. And you wouldn't live to publish this story, right? And certainly the government will know all. So, so how did that happen? I can't entirely answer that, but the exciting part is lots of times people in an investigation tell you this is not possible. And like any, I hope, good investigator, you ask basic questions and try to figure out how does the system work and, and is there a pathway? Not that I knew that I would be able to figure this out, but go back and ask basic questions. So it turns out that China had great documents. It turns out that just me making a $50 request through a law firm or a consulting firm could give me you know, access to 300 pages of documents on a, on a Chinese corporation. And then once I got it, I could start evaluating what does this look like? What do the documents look like? How do I translate this into English? How do I make sense of it? That's actually the fun part is not knowing the answer. Not This is an investigation where we didn't go in knowing the answer. We didn't know what the documents would look like, how to translate them, how to also understand the layered system of Chinese corporate ownership, which nests and hides um, secret shareholders or natural people behind companies. So it just turns out that a lot of these things were not true, that they're actually anyone in China could have gotten these documents. 
anyone could have paid $50 and requested the, the historic corporate ownership files of Ping'an Insurance Company, that you could actually go to the Shenzhen uh, government website and look up the owners of some companies. The difficult part was even if you got all of those documents, how do you prove that these people are related? How do you know with Chinese names, there's a complication of, you know, the wife doesn't take the husband's name. How do you track the people? How do you, you can't find marriage or birth records. How do you prove that they're actually related? But I found a way over that year and a half to sort of deal with each one of these challenges and find an answer. Um, and I can talk about some of the ways that we did that. But I think the short story is there was a way to know this. It was all incredibly well documented. China in some ways is not very transparent and in other ways is incredibly transparent. And sometimes when people tell you this is impossible and there's no record of this, there actually is a record. Those people might not have actually been in the corporate record system of China. Those maybe were people who were just assuming that there was no record or they figured because they had layered the records or hidden the people that you wouldn't be able to figure out all of these Chinese names and cousins and in-laws and white gloves, etc. Um, but actually, we were able to reconstruct that. And I think in any time uh, I've gone into an investigation, I always kind of assume that or believe that when there is some sort of crime involved or corruption activity or nefarious activity, it's hard to cover up every part of it, right? It's hard to think like we're going we're gonna to figure out every way to doctor every document and we're going to use these names. There's, you're dealing with dozens or hundreds of companies. So where do these people slip up? Where are the clues about who people are? That's the fun of doing an investigation is searching for names, searching SEC filings or Hong Kong listed uh, company filings and then finding the clues that bring you to the story and then sort of coloring in the map of what's going on. And this was like the best case I can imagine of finding Chinese documents, Hong Kong documents, even U.S. documents, combining all those things together, matching up names, matching relationships, meeting people who had had dinner with the prime minister's family or went to school with someone there or, or just knew them in passing and asking them for little details about who's who or how this works or what their company's name is. That was the fun of the investigation. So I think it's fair to say that the Chinese government didn't share your enthusiasm mm -hmm. for the investigation or the results that you uncovered. Talk a little bit about, if you could, about what the Chinese government's reaction and what Wen Jiabao's family's reaction was to your story when it came out. So first I should back up and say, as I mentioned earlier, that as a Western journalist, you know you are tracked in China. When you travel to different parts of China, they do register your, your passport as a journalist. They send the police sometimes to the hotel to track you when you leave. So we knew we know that all the journalists are under surveillance, especially the New York Times reporters. So I had to come up with a plan from the very beginning of the investigation. How do I do this in as careful and cautious a way? How do I not put my research assistants or translators in jeopardy with the authorities? How do I not let the government on to that I'm doing this investigation? So 
we came up with a pretty extensive plan, probably not perfect, but it was to not let people know what we were doing for as long as possible. As we went along, it was hard to keep all that a secret. We didn't know whether when we requested documents, the government was hearing about that or knowing about that or even intercepting the packages. But it, I, I should just say that, you know, it was a major effort thinking about your phones, thinking about traveling all around China and doing this kind of thing without tipping off the government to the investigation. And also, when I meet people, not scaring them away, thinking, oh, he's investigating something very serious or, or could be threatening to me. So I won't tell you all the details of what we did, but there were lots of things we tried to do to keep this under wraps. And part of the plan was that we would, after a while, we decided, you know what, we're not going to make a single phone call. I am going to gather all the documents. There are actually lots of documents, as I said, and I'm going to wait until the final weeks of this investigation. If I make phone calls to people, they are going to be to accountants or lawyers or others just asking them about the structure of Chinese corporations or how do I read accounting documents, how do I read registration documents, all sorts of things that just give me the background, but are, do not. I will not ask anyone about this family or anything. So in the end, in the final week, we, we obviously had to go to everyone we researched in call them, inform them, let them know, because it was such a serious story that allow them to say, defend themselves or to say this is not true or to explain why they were in these companies. We did all of that in, I think, the last week to two. In the end, we started to hear that the Chinese government started to understand we were working on some investigative piece and they would sort of circle our office in Shanghai tried to interview people that would come into our building, tracked my uh, whereabouts better, um, started to block our our email access um, at home and at the office. So we had the idea they knew something, we just didn't know how much they knew. And in the final weeks when I could not really even communicate with my editors through email on the story, we decided I should I should leave China to finish the final edits. And so I flew to Tokyo to do the final edits on this story, but also to make those calls to the Chinese government and to the family of the prime minister and anyone mentioned in the story and say, this story is coming. I want to warn you about it. I want to tell you everything that we're going to use in this. I want you to be able to tell us if this is wrong, right? I mean, you want to not only be fair to people, but but you want to make sure that you don't make huge errors um, because a lot was at stake with this article. So we did that. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, lots of people hung up, uh, lots of people were angry, some people threatened us, uh, the government called me back to China uh, to talk about this. They sent people to visit the New York Times offices and the publisher and the editor in New York to try to stop this article from being published. So there was a pretty major effort on the part of the Chinese government to prevent this story from coming out and to uh, let us know that if the story did come out, there would be huge consequences for me personally, for my wife, who's a Chinese citizen, and for the New York Times. Um, so as, as you can tell, they, they, were, they would not be very happy about us publishing an article like this. So which leads me to a question. It might seem like a silly question at first, but I'm, I'm really serious about this. Why do they care so much about 
this story because I want to get to into a moment. I want to talk more explicitly about the potential corruption dimension of this, but mm -hmm. your story, as I read it, doesn't necessarily specifically allege illegality. It highlights the degree to which the family of the prime minister is fabulously wealthy. Mm -hmm. It seems from the reaction that you received that not just Wen Jiabao and his family, but the Chinese leadership generally mm -hmm. considers the reporting that the family of the prime minister is extremely rich, politically mm -hmm. explosive, very, very worrisome, concerning. And there was a similar reaction when the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists did a similar mm -hmm. piece about mm -hmm. the offshore holdings of the so-called Chinese princelings. There's a similar reaction. It's not the case everywhere that leaders are really upset for people to know that their family is really rich. There's a story that you could tell that, hey, we're a high-achieving family, we have savvy mm -hmm. business people, or hey, yeah, we have connections, guanxi, the Chinese word, and, and through that, mm -hmm. we've been able to make good business deals, but there's nothing hugely scandalous about the fact mm -hmm. that we're really rich. It might be slightly embarrassing for a premier that has this kind of man-of-the-people image, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the reaction of the Chinese government generally was so extreme to anything like this, anything disclosing the wealth of the family members, it, it invites the question, why in China is this sort of disclosure considered so politically mm -hmm. explosive? Okay, yeah, I think it's kind of easy if you've spent enough time in China to see why, I mean, we knew what the reaction would be. So you have to think in the in the context of China where for the most part, the senior leaders' families are off-limits to the press. Even if you searched online, Google or anything behind the Great Firewall in China, for most cases, they block searches of the, just the names of, of family members of senior leaders because that could be, it could just be embarrassing, even if it's not illegal. So we knew just by the fact that they censored any mention of the names, and they made clear to the Chinese media that you are not to write about the families of top government leaders without our permission, that it was a very sensitive topic. There were many stories over the years, like for instance, that Hu Jintao's, the president Hu Jintao's son at the time was involved in a in a contract in, in South Africa or, a, or an African country with the Chinese government, that, that didn't look good. Lots of other leaders had been brought down and even executed, not senior leaders, but there have been executions based on people found to be corrupt with $1 million, forget billions of dollars. So we knew that this was highly sensitive. Also, if you follow Chinese politics, you know that one way different leaders or factions attack others is through alleging corruption or leaking allegations of corruption, usually not inside of China, into the media inside of China, but offshore. So Chinese publications in Taiwan or in the U.S. or on blogs allege some corruption that somehow gets picked up and it's used as a weapon in the battle of, you know, behind the scenes Chinese politics. So and in fact, in our own case, the Chinese government alleged and a lot of other people alleged that 
we were really working with one of the prime minister's enemies, that, that someone had given us these documents to weaken the prime minister in his final months in office, um, that we were part of a faction, that it was part of a conspiracy. And I can actually understand some people believing that because there are often these leaks and these efforts to play hardball, not in the official press, but in foreign media or offshore media or something that weakens a person. So it would be pretty disruptive to the Chinese government if they thought anyone on the Politburo Standing Committee could be exposed in any way, but especially by the Western media of a publication like the New York Times, it had never been done before. So what would the consequences be? Um, would they have to, you know, detain people in, in the family of Wen Jiabao? And I can tell you, family members uh, that I talked to before we published brought up that very topic of what would happen to us or to me, they said, if this were exposed. Not just possible prison time, but possible execution, destruction of our family. So, and in fact, we now know post-publication that while Wen Jiabao has not been brought down uh, because of this story, that people in the family circle that we mentioned in this article have been detained, are under arrest, or have gone missing in China since the article. So it, it's it's a pretty it, it can also bring bring down a whole chain. And I'll say one final thing is, remember also the context of the investigation into corruption with Bo Xilai, which the Chinese government led, was coming out right at that time. And how did Bo Xilai fall? Bo Xilai fell because of a leak to the U.S. government at the embassy, or, or the consulate in uh, Chengdu, I think, but also a foreigner, a British citizen involved, uh, the, the murder, possible murder of a British citizen, led to this dynamic where Bo Xilai, one of the top leaders, came under scrutiny and eventually the government had to take him down. So any other rumor about other top leaders could not only be about, wow, there's corruption in the high ranks of China, but maybe we should look into all the others. So they would not want to see that scrutiny of the top leaders and that spread to the populace and lead to possible protests. I mean, as you may recall, 1989, Tiananmen Square, those protests were a lot about official corruption, about the children even of senior leaders being involved in corruption. And at some point in, in 1989, I think in July or August after the, the crackdown, the government announced that the children of senior leaders would from now on be banned from doing business, which is kind of incredible. They didn't follow through on this ban, but for a while they had announced that, okay, we're gonna deal with corruption at the highest levels, the children are not going to be in business anymore. Obviously, by, by the time I was writing, they were not only in business, but they were making huge amount, un, you know, unbelievable amounts of money in business, exactly in the fields that their parents were overseeing. So that's, I think, really the key to this. And I think the answer that you just gave to my last question is kind of the answer that I expected, which is if people see these families with this much money, the assumption is that they got it through corrupt or otherwise illicit. The assumption is not going to be these are savvy business people who have, you know, they've got connections, but, you know, that's right. just the way it works. Right. Uh, but right. That right. but that there's corruption going on here. Now, if I recall correctly, and again, tell me if I'm wrong about this, the, the piece, the long piece that you published, the original piece on Wen Jiabao's family, it, it was 
careful, my reading, is mm. not to come right out and say that there was corruption because you were basing the story on what you had documentary evidence to prove. And what you could prove was ownership yep. through these very complicated or sometimes not mm -hmm. so complicated layers of mm -hmm. shell companies and, and ownership. They had all this money, but you didn't come right out and say mm. that these were the proceeds of corruption. Your Pulitzer Surprise announcement, when they conferred on you the Pulitzer, which I, I, I looked at again right before we, we'd had this conversation, they had no such qualms. They said, mm. you know, to David Barboza for, I'll paraphrase, exposing corruption at the highest levels of right. the Chinese government. Right. So right. there's this assumption that this money is coming from something from corrupt sources. And mm -hmm. again, understanding that you want to be very cautious about this, especially mm -hmm. journals reporting on this. So without leveling any specific accusations, can you say a little bit more about the kinds of corruption that might have been at play, how it functions at these high levels? And I ask mm. this in part because when people think about corruption in China, one mental image we might have is foreign business, or for that matter, domestic business wants to operate in a particular city and they need a mm -hmm. permit. And mm -hmm. the local official says, if you want a permit, I need a payoff. That, right, that right, kind of transactional right, bribery. Right. Um, but I get the sense that when we're talking about the senior leaders, the mm -hmm. so-called princelings, mm -hmm. the kinds of activities that may be the explanation for the wealth accumulation that you documented, yeah. we're talking about a different kind of corruption. Mm -hmm. So how does it work? How does high-level corruption in China, to the best of your knowledge, based on what you know, your own reporting and others, how, how does it operate? Right. So first, on the decision, I think, you know, we were trying to be very cautious about how we what did we have evidence? What could we, we really were thinking, or I was thinking, we're going to go to court over this story. So let's, everything be documented. Let's uh, be very conservative about the estimate of the money they have. And let's not go beyond what we can absolutely say. So let's not use the word corruption and just say, this is what happened with the family of the prime minister in this situation. And what I was trying to get at when you asked, you know, how does the system work is not just the rumors, but things I, I myself witnessed or people that I know who worked with the sort of relatives of senior leaders explained to me how the system was working. And I would I was interviewing all through that period I was in China, people at elite businesses, multinational firms, Chinese companies. And often when we finish the interview or finish the dinner, I would say off the record, explain to me how the system really works. And what they often said to me is a very important part of doing business in China, especially if you're a major company, is getting the families of senior leaders to partner with you. And that could mean giving them shares, that could mean setting up a joint venture with them. That could mean them setting up a company and you investing in them. But there, my understanding was if you were a major company in China, Chinese or not Chinese, if you wanted to be a major player, you needed not only their, their acceptance as, as, as a sort of a partner, but also their protection. That having them could not only open doors for you, but it could prevent you from being investigated, say. And so in, in, rather than you would, you would think having them as a partner might lead to an investigation, it was believed often that having them as a partner would make the investigators go away. The investigators would not, you know, you would say, well, my partner is the son of the prime minister. And the investigators would say, well, we can't do it then. So it was important once you got to a certain level to get a senior leader. So the way I was told it would work is when you're a local company, when you're starting out, 
you need to do corruption on the local level and find the local officials to give you that license, that uh, protection, that partnership, help them out with their families and, and all of that you would get you would get these certain benefits. Then your company grows bigger and you go to the provincial level. Then you need to go up to provincial level officials and to bring them in. And maybe you still have the local officials. Now you have provincial officials. And then say, now you're becoming a national company and you say, well, let's move our headquarters to Beijing. And now that we're a you know prominent company, you cannot be a prominent company unless you have this sort of protection and support from the elite leaders. And so the people at the top and their families could either call you up and say, you know, we would love a, a stake in this company, or you'd have to seek them out and make sure that they were on board. And what I came to understand is there were, there were and I've in fact seen in the records, there are many companies where there were lots of officials' kids in there. So they have the local officials' kids, the provincial, the senior leaders. They have even people that you would think are like in the different parties of the state are their kids are partnering on companies. Even if they were enemies um, or, or rivals, uh, political rivals, they might their children might be partnered as at some company. So I'm not saying that every single company would have this structure, but... From my understanding, it was a very important feature to most companies. And whether you wanted to do it or not, you were pressured into doing it. You were made to believe that if you didn't do it, you wouldn't get the right license or you would get extra scrutiny. Or if your competitor had the, the, a, a child of a, a senior leader and you didn't, you were at a disadvantage. Um, they might even invest, investigate you. So I think the way I understood the system to work is this was a key part of succeeding in China. And I think now looking back, you can probably ask any multinational that is a major player in China. And, and if you could go through their record books of their history in China and their, you know, when they hired consultants and others and say, did you have any dealings with the top families in China? I would think it's very highly unlikely that they would say no. They would all have to have met some of the families, the Deng family, the Wen family, the Hu Jintao family. They might have them as partners. They might have their friends as partners or their associates as partners. That I've looked at a lot of companies now in China. There are very few that I don't see some of this in the structure. To me, it's really the degree. Some companies they're just filled with this sort of the political people in them and others have fewer, at least fewer that I notice. But I can't imagine a company says no at every level. And think about for a company, I can do it through my supply chain. I can do it through shares. I can do it through my investments. I can do it by buying properties for the, a leader's family overseas. If you go through, I don't know if you know this, but every year in China, the government announces about 200,000 government officials a year are brought down on charges of corruption, 200,000. So just think of like, you know, the years, how, how much that adds up. And when you read the documents of what happened in these cases, you could do, a, you know, a chart of like at every level of government, you see helping the families, helping the mistress, buying assets overseas, giving them JVs. I mean, none, none of what we found is actually new. It's just the scale of the money we found with the prime minister was so astonishing that it could be almost $3 billion. And In fact, it, it could have been much higher if we had included all the, the documents. So I would, 
say the system is you need to partner, you need support, you need protection, you need licenses, you need the families of important people, and these families are paid very little for their official jobs. The prime minister of China does not make a lot of money. So how are they affording to send their children to schools in the U.S. and in, in the U.K.? How are they affording all of these other luxuries? And the way they look at it is, I am a senior leader in China. I don't get paid very much, but I have all these incredible powers. You want a license and so do five other companies. Why should I give it to you? What are you going to do for this leader? What are you going to do for the state? I think each company in China, whether a local company or a global company operating in China, faces this question of how do you support the state, meaning the Communist Party, and also how do you support your friends in China? And that was often the families of senior leaders. You had to visit them, meet them, meet their kids. I mean, all the you know Hong Kong billionaires and the others, they do the same thing. They go to China, they make partnerships with the kids of the leaders, they get them jobs, they give them internships, they invest in their companies. If I could draw a map, this is this is what it would look like of how you get business done in China. It's not you know China is part capitalist. It's a Chinese you know with with a socialist or a capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And that's, I think, what this means is you need a mix of market-driven company, but also do not think that you do not have to be in bed or tied to the party and the families of the party senior leaders or the senior leaders of the party. So I wanted to pick up on something you just said. This is fascinating about how if you're a business, domestic or foreign, Mm -hmm. and you want to do business in China, at least if you want to grow beyond a certain level, you need to make friends, powerful people in the political elite. And that often means bringing Mm -hmm. their children or relatives or they themselves into your business and giving them a stake, shares, Mm -hmm. something like that. So, but of course, one of the things that you found in your reporting is that the princelings, the the elites themselves, are trying to keep very secret the fact Mm -hmm. that they have these relationships with these companies. But presumably the companies must know, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense to bring in as a shareholder some random operating company if you don't know that five layers back it's controlled by a princeling. So do I understand this correctly that, let's focus on a foreign business. Foreign business wants to go into China. They know that princeling X is buying a stake in the company. Do they also know that Princeling X is taking measures to conceal his stake in the company? I mean, do they know that this Um, is something that's being kept on the down low? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm just going to step back a little with a little bit of history here and say after 89, when the children are all apparently kicked out of business, in the 90s, it started to be increasingly accepted again that we can't really kick them out and they're actually an important part of business and they let them go back in. And actually by the late 90s or early 2000s, some of them were somewhat public. So if you remember President Jiang Zemin, his son was doing a lot of business with the state entity, but he was partnering with a lot of multinationals. The son of the prime minister at that time, Zhu Rongji, was also going into business running an investment bank whose partner was Morgan Stanley, um, CICC. So you increasingly had some public face of the senior leaders' kids doing business and or former leaders' kids in business. And so it became okay again 
in a way, as long as it didn't look like corruption. And people came up with very creative ways, said, well, if it looks corrupt for our business to give you money in some kickback or secret bribe, suppose we just invested in your company. Then it would be like it's 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 like a open thing. And I also think though although there was the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that a lot of the multinationals figured out a way to get around that. And they sort of said, we'll hire them as consultants, as JP Morgan did. Or, uh, like I said, we'll invest with their companies, we'll partner with them, we'll go and I remember visiting, meeting some, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who came to Shanghai and said to me, by the way, I'm meeting with the former president's son this afternoon. So this became increasingly common. And also, in some ways, it was a secret. And in other ways, it wasn't a secret. In fact, some of the companies started bragging about they had a senior leader on their board or that were their partners and that would actually lead other people to invest in their company they would they on a conference call they might mention this so i think somehow between the late 90s and the time i was starting to report on this it was still a sensitive topic but a lot of companies and even i think the chinese government felt that this is all something we, we can be okay with because no one is going to go after them in a big way. Foreign journalists wouldn't write about this in a sensitive way that would get them kicked out of China. So they, I think they figured out through lots of different mechanisms, especially consulting firms in ownership offshore and ownership through shell companies that we could all do this. We could all be partners. We could all know what they are, but we don't know exactly how much money is flowing through. Now, I'll give you an example. I remember a case where I think it was Citibank or Citigroup made a, a major deal in China with a Chinese bank. And in the, in the final days of the deal, a group of new investors or new companies came in and, and put their name on the list. And so when they announced the deal with this Chinese bank, they said, and our partners are X, Y, and Z company. And no one knew who those companies were. And I met someone who was involved in the deal who said, we never actually understood why the government pushed for this company to come in, in the, at the last moment and buy a stake in this. And I went back and looked up that company and started to see, oh, I see how there were all these hidden owners in that. It may have been this happened all the time where you were pushed to do a joint venture. You have no idea who this person is. It could have been the prime minister's son. It could have been the prime minister's cousin. It could have been the prime minister's best friend's company. And you were supporting that, but you were not to ask questions. And if you know that doing an investigation into this in China is a very dangerous thing, even for the crows of the world to investigate political leaders, maybe you think, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do these deals. We don't actually want to know who's really behind them and who is going to be brave enough or risk enough to go in and start picking through these companies and challenging the government. Would that harm your company more? by asking the question of who this person is. So I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but over time, it became an accepted way of doing business. They created mechanisms and shell companies and hidden ownerships and winks and nods that you knew you were partnering, you were doing a favor to someone and you had really no choice about doing it. You mentioned the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act a moment ago, at least for a foreign business that falls within US, U.S. jurisdiction, either because it's a U.S. firm or lists on a, a U.S. exchange, issues securities in the U.S. market. If you provide something of value 
to a foreign official or indirectly through a third party to benefit a foreign official in order to obtain or retain business. That's a criminal offense. Yes. And companies will say, we do lots of due diligence. You know, we don't as we try to make sure we know who we're dealing with. There are red flags or things like there's some company we don't know who owns it. I don't want to ask you a question that's too delicate for you to answer again without having all of the evidence settled, but to the extent that you feel comfortable opining or speculating on this, I mean, it sounds like one could draw the conclusion from what you just said. There are a whole lot of foreign firms that are pretty clearly violating the FCPA and attempting to maintain a kind of plausible deniability head in the sand that technically under the statute is not allowed. The more charitable version of this is they're making good faith efforts to comply and it's just really hard. Which of these do you think is closer to the truth? Yeah, I hate to draw a line right in the middle, but um, I think in many cases, because I know some very specific cases, they know. They know exactly who they're doing business with and they know where the money is flowing. And in other cases, they can have the deniability and say, well, we set up a company with this person who was recommended by this government official. But when we looked at the corporate records, it ended with this person. And we did not know that that's the best friend of that government official or even a distant cousin or or had set up another company to route the money to the government official. Like, like how do we do all that in China? And what company takes on that job of going in and questioning the government officials, family members, who who wants to do that and who could do that. So they have some deniability. And in other cases, they know that there's something going on um, because they're meeting the family members, they're investing with the family members, they're courting. I mean, they are intentionally seeking out some of these family members. And I'm speaking of cases that I actually know where they call upon the families of senior leaders to meet them, to greet them, and to say, what, what can we do for you? What, you know, where should we set up our joint venture? And I think so many uh, U.S. companies have been involved in that situation. I think even, you know, I don't want to pick on Microsoft, but I think Microsoft's joint venture in Shanghai, one of the early ones, was a joint venture with the family of the son, with the son of the president at the time. Now, he was running a state company, but this son was their joint venture partner. Um, And I don't want to just pick on Microsoft because I think almost all of the companies, the major companies that went in, had to go in and have a connected company. Even if it's a state company, there could be lots of ways of putting some money in the pockets of the, the senior leaders' families. And I think I haven't seen any major family in China that isn't loaded. So they have contracts with not just Chinese companies, but global companies. So there could be FCPA, but I can easily say as a multinational, we couldn't follow the full route of this. Or they were so clever, they used a bunch of intermediaries and shell companies. They introduced me to a person. What am I going to do? Do a DNA test on the guy? How could I know? So it's a perfect world for that to exist, right, is first of all, I can say there's no way for me to get all of the records. And second of all, I can say, I, I, you know, what, what we did all that we could do, we made a good faith effort in this. Now, I can then, you know, argue the other side, which is how does someone like me come in with a very small budget, find $2.7 billion with the family of the prime minister of China, and their network of friends 
invested in companies that, you know, Ping An, which was the major focus of our investigation, was largely 20% was owned by HSBC, a British-based bank. Also major shareholders early in Ping An were Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. And so there were lots of, this was a, you know, an amazing company with lots of partners all over the place. What due diligence did these companies do? I do not know. I would love to see the documents, but I can tell you it took me, you know, two or three months to figure out that that this was all tying back to the family of the prime minister. And if they had really good due diligence or just someone who could request records, they could have certainly did a lot better than me. So they could have been able to know that if I could do it in such a short period of time. So you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I did just want to ask one final question before we wrap up. Uh, and let me frame it this way. So your original story on the wealth of the Wen Jiabao family came out in October 2012. So mm-hmm. just a little bit uh, over seven years ago. So there have been some changes in China. Obviously, there's a leadership transition. And mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, the new president, has made anti-corruption the centerpiece of his campaign, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, of his administration. He's started this major anti-corruption campaign. When it started, I think a lot of people expected that it would follow the pattern, not so different from what you described in the aftermath of uh, Tiananmen Square, which is occasionally the Chinese government would make some big noises about cracking down on corruption. It would last for a little while and then it would fade. But the Xi Jinping anti-corruption campaign seems not to be mm-hmm. fading. It seems to be still a, a major focus. And the question, at least for me, this invites is, Understanding that you haven't been back to China, I don't think you can Mm -hmm, go back mm -hmm. to China, given the reporting that you've done. Have things changed? How have things changed? This system that your reporting helped to expose and that you just just described in more detail, has that been affected in any way Mm. by the Xi administration's purported crackdown on corruption? Is there anything that you think is different or is that campaign continuing to take 200,000 officials a year and punish them, mm-hmm. maybe the numbers up a bit, but this system of yeah. corruption involving the princelings and other relatives of the senior leaders has been basically untouched? So very difficult question, but I would say, yes, this Xi Jinping effort has been different in the, in the scale of it, right? And I think it was it was probably more intense partly because... Bloomberg News reported on Xi Jinping's family just before he took office. So that put his family under scrutiny. I reported on the family of the prime minister. Bo Lai fell. There, I guess maybe in the central government in China and Beijing, they felt there is every time there's a new change in leadership, there is a major anti-corruption campaign, partly to wipe out all the guys that you don't, or people that you don't want to be your rivals, but partly to show the public that we are doing something to rein in corruption. I think this one was different because Xi Jinping maybe very early on was determined to become the supreme leader. The the Politburo of uh, idea of seven people, Politburo Standing Committee of seven or nine men of equal stature would become one supreme Mao-like leader. And for him to get that done, he would need to make sure that he didn't have rivals. And so the anti-corruption campaign was particularly targeted at those rivals or people from who were seeming to have allegiances to other, even former leaders, because you may or may not know that even as a former leader in China, 
you continue to hold power, you continue to have a network of people that grew up under you. And so Xi Jinping was determined to, it seems, to wipe out those power networks and also to make sure that businessmen in China, mostly also businesswomen, that the business elites, it was it didn't become like Russia or something where they not only took state assets, but started controlling the politics from their business posts. And so I think behind the scenes, Xi Jinping wanted to make clear that I'm going after corruption to get the public to support my campaign because they, you know, they want to see corruption wiped out. But I also want to get rid of my rivals. I want to also send a message to the business community that you will not have allegiances to other leaders who could challenge me in my group. So all of these things took place. But as time goes on, I believe less and less that this was a real anti-corruption campaign. It was more of a consolidation, political consolidation effort on a grander scale with a person who wants to be the supreme leader. And if it was a real anti-corruption campaign, there are so many people that would have fallen. I mean, even Wen Jiabao's family would probably be in even bigger trouble if it was a, if there was a real independent prosecution of corruption. So I think, and even people close to Xi Jinping would have been taken down. So I don't think this is a real anti-corruption campaign, although it is an anti-corruption campaign. But it's a, we're going to go after the corrupt people that we don't like rather than the corrupt people we like. And also, I didn't think then and I don't think now that it's realistic to have a truly real anti-corruption campaign because frankly who would be left i mean you you know basically if everyone's family is involved you would the party would commit suicide right it would arrest everyone and then who would be running the country so they have to figure out what is a path to reducing corruption slowly improving the system even if they're really honest about it um, if you just wipe out all the heads then everyone believed that this was okay so everyone did it, including multinationals, big Chinese companies, state-owned firms. You can't kill off the whole country in the economy. So they wanted to do something strategic, something that would support Xi Jinping, something that would show that we're cleaning up, something that would play well in the West as well as in China. That's what they did. But I would say it was not a real campaign, and it cannot be a real campaign without actually undercutting the Communist Party. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Uh, again, my guest today on Kickback has been David Barboza, who's shared his deep expertise and experience with China and Chinese corruption at the very highest level. So then thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed that. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you want to help us out, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. It makes it much easier for others to find the show. 